Pour parler d'agriculture et d'Europe à la jeunesse. Le climat-wandel erfasst immer weitere Teile der Welt. Farmers help us bring nature back and preserve biodiversity. Ceux qui sont dans le rouge s'en sortent quand ils font plus vert. La qualité dans ce pays, elle doit être là pour tous. It's delivery day at my neighborhood supermarket, the best place to shop. Soon my fridge will be full and we'll sit down to a good meal without the slightest care. Personally, I'm lucky never to have known hunger. So it is too for many Europeans of my generation. What's more, at the beginning of the pandemic last year, it wasn't food that consumers in Western countries worried about. It was toilet paper. Figure out that. In their public statements, political leaders hammered it hard. Coronavirus would not cause food shortages. But that didn't stop the impulse to hoard supplies and there was a short spate of panic buying, with queues outside supermarkets and occasional empty shelves. So why, a year later, launch Europe-wide consultations to draw lessons from the pandemic on food supply? Why has the European Union made an emergency plan to guarantee food security in times of crisis? Did we, in fact, without knowing it, come close to disaster? This is, as it were, the meat and potatoes of this, our 10th edition of Food for Europe, and a very warm welcome. To answer these questions, I went to meet European experts in the field, audio recorder and internet connection to hand. And the book published this year in France caught my eye. Eat Tomorrow promises an analysis of the response during COVID and of future food needs. Its author, Frédéric Wallet, is an economist at the National Research Institute for Agriculture, Food and the Environment in Toulouse. Hello, Frédéric, and welcome to Food for Europe. In your book, you argue that the pandemic has heightened the weaknesses of our food systems. However, we have always found food on shop shelves, haven't we? La pandémie a montré... Uh... The pandemic has shown both an increasing vulnerability of the food system, especially in the internal functioning of certain aspects like distribution, dependence on seasonal labor, for example. And then, by contrast, it's also a fairly good level of resilience at the end of the day, also in the long-distance distribution, which overall was able to adapt well, apart from a few specific cases where there was a shortage of products on the shelves, there was no major food slump on Europe-wide. Okay, let's get back to those fundamental questions. Why this and why now? And we're with one of the people designing the EU food security contingency plan, Michael Scannell, Deputy Director General at DG Agri. Good morning to you. What's the rationale for this here, Michael? There were moments in uh, April, May and June of last year which did create real fears that on top of a public health crisis, we would also be faced with a food security crisis. And at a moment when we needed to focus on that public health crisis, Frankly, it was extremely dangerous, so the view was taken that we needed to fundamentally review our approach towards food security to ensure that we're equipped in the future to deal with any potential new threats. Because the reality is, new issues will emerge. Such as? Climate change clearly presents very important risks. We're already seeing evidence of, uh, for example, through water shortages, unexpected climatic events such as uh, flooding, droughts, etc., that are calling into question our capacity and ability to continue to produce food in the volumes that we currently produce. 
Another one highlighted by the experts, for example, is um, uh, cyber attacks. Our uh, agri-food chain is very heavily dependent now on sophisticated supply networks, just-on-time deliveries, etc. And these, in turn, often have a heavy reliance on informatic systems. And if, for example, they break down for one reason or another, that has real potential to cause problems in the food supply chain. And very often, these types of problems are self-escalating. What starts as a little problem can quickly escalate into a big problem. But it doesn't stop there, does it? Particularly if you look at the interface between those leading the crisis management and populations depending on their judgment. If you add to that the usual risks that you face, for example, uh, poor communication or breakdowns in communication, political opportunism, you can see uh, a policy mix emerging that uh, can and could lead to important problems. So essentially we need to be prepared for such events. So to improve the resilience of the European food system, including our fisheries and with no compromise to food safety, the EU is building a forum for permanent consultation, is it, involving also countries that are not members of the European Union. How is it going to work, in fact? There's a range of issues. First and foremost, uh, to establish clear contact points, roles and responsibilities. And again, this is a, a lesson from COVID and previous crises. The first question that always arises in these types of situations is, who do I contact? And it, it sounds simple, uh, but you know, depending on, on the crisis and its nature, the, the persons you need to contact differ. So essentially, you need a, a clear identification of uh, who's responsible, what they're responsible for, how they can be contacted, how you can bring them together, how you can establish priorities, uh, how we communicate, how we engage with private stakeholders, farmers, manufacturers, distributors, retailers, etc. So I'm standing here now in desolate, snow-covered countryside in France. There are not many cars around, but plenty of trucks pounding the B roads, maybe having driven through the night from ports and depots to make those just-in-time deliveries just in time. And there's someone I know who understands about the logistics and management of crises on a global scale. David Horobin, you're head of crisis management at the Geneva Centre for Security Policy in Switzerland, and you were also part of the panel of experts that Michael Scannell just referred to on the Food Security Contingency Plan. Look at the Asian tsunami in 2004, which I was heavily involved with. Um, there was no fuel. No matter what you put on the ground, if you don't have fuel for vehicles, for generators, for um, helicopters, for aircraft, then you're really hampered. You know, logistics is really key. Lean, lean, lean um, logistics creates a fragility. You know, it's very good for getting the costs low, um, but I would argue that it's not necessarily a good having a resilient system. Give us your key takeaway from the European pandemic response, please. COVID has certain characteristics. The next thing that's going to come along and hit us will be different and will have different characteristics. When we talk about you know, building the resilience, there are skills that can be learned. I think that often the decision makers, the senior leadership, need also to recognise that they don't know everything. One of the best ways that we found of, of trying to enhance that resilience at the individual team and organisational level, is by practising together. By practising together, you can identify gaps and systems and protocols that you have missing or that need to be improved. But critically, it improves trust. 
it improves trust within the team that is um, trying to manage this event. It improves trust between you know the decision makers um, and should we say the engine room of the crisis response. And it also improves trust, I think, wider within the civilian population. David Horobin, thanks a lot for those insights. Right, now I'm in dairy and beef farming territory. It's the Auvergne region of the Massif Central. Me and one of its famous tan-coloured Salaire breed of bulls are eyeballing one another, suspiciously. Probably he's thinking of food. I hope he's thinking of food. Have you ever wondered just how complex it is to feed such a 400 to 500 kilogram brute and to keep the animal feed rolling during a crisis? Alexander During knows. Alexander, you're the Secretary-General of FIFAC, the European Feed Manufacturers Federation. You're speaking for the feeders of the animals that feed us, which is an often overlooked but vital part of the food chain. We see ourselves as FIFA a bit like a radar station. We, we, we can see a storm coming and we hope, you know, by, by increasing the transmission, the speed of transmission of such information, we have a better chance you now of finding the right mitigation measures, you now of preventing a real food security challenge. Right now, the experience has been for our part that most of the crisis management has been done on an ad hoc basis. The pandemic just came up. It, and then, oh yeah, how can we ensure food security? But we're really walking on thin ice here. We strongly recommend uh, the setting up of a permanent crisis response mechanism. So how do you thicken that thin ice so suppliers, producers and consumers don't fall through? The core question, whose responsibility is it in the value chain to keep strategic stocks, needs to be addressed. There's so much the private sector can do, but it cannot uh, take all the extra costs linked to strategic supplies. We, we believe there has to be a, a new balance, a new equilibrium has to be found between public uh, authorities' responsibility. In our case, average uh, storage time on feed mills is about up to three months. So we have feed mills which only hold 14 days of stocks. Uh, our farmers, uh, if you talk about the p poultry or pig farmer, yeah, seven days, 14 days, uh, that's not a lot. Né? So, so if, if you're faced with a, with a bigger supply chain crisis, again, there are vulnerabilities and that's something that needs to be analyzed to see in which way additional buffer uh, can be built in the system to increase further our resilience. Thanks a lot, Alexander. However, let's not forget there are alternative viewpoints championed by the likes of Morgan Audi, a small-scale vegetable producer in the Brittany region of France and senior member of Via Campesina, an international body of peasant organisations and small and medium-scale producers. If we want to rebuild food sovereignty, we need to have strong support for diversified autonomous agriculture throughout the European Union. So what, in your view, is the model that actually works? Most of the farms in Central Europe, but also in Southern Europe, are of less than uh, 10 hectares. And these farms are very productive. All these farms do sell their production to the local consumers and take an enormous part in the food security of Europe. On the contrary, industrial agriculture, which is taking more and more land, which is taking more and more water, is not producing so much food. So in terms of ensuring food security, agroecology, peasant-based agroecology with many farmers, it is the key. 
Thanks very much, Morgan Odi. So to Michael Scannell again, a Deputy Director General at DG Agri, on the point that Morgan raises about a switch to less intensive, more sustainable farming. This is, after all, integral to the European Green Deal and common agricultural policy reforms, is it not? These policies, Green Deal, Farm to Fork, Fit for 55, they're not the, pro- the, the problem, they're the solution. Because essentially, uh, unless and until we're able to uh, ensure that our overall societal models on how we produce and consume are sustainable, well then we're very vulnerable, especially vulnerable to the consequences of climate change, which is why we now have a a range of policies that are uh, essentially now uh, being presented, and that includes uh, the the contingency plan uh, on food security, which are exactly designed to basically ensure that we can produce and consume in a more sustainable uh, manner and deal with uh, this particularly significant threat from climate change. And we need to make them more sustainable. Thanks a lot for appearing in the programme, Michael. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Let's go to Italy and give a last word to Valentina Zanetti, who is export manager in a dairy business and member of an umbrella European dairy trade body. Her family-run business employs 500 people. We managed to keep our system rolling throughout to ensure our employees a safe and stable work environment and to bring our quality goods to the consumers with the same attention and love for what we do. And I think we have already the solution to a crisis because we have the EU and the single market. We need the single market and we consider it a little bit as our lighthouse in these cases. But for Valentina, there's another less tangible ingredient in the mix, equally if not more important. Yeast to turn a plan into a living, breathing thing of value to us all. Trust, definitely, and I think it's a trust not only in our institutions, but uh, trust uh, that exists between us and our employees, uh, that exists between us and our supply chain, incoming and outgoing supply chain. And definitely in the moments of the pandemic, really, it was all based on uh, on trust and and then trusting also we could make it and it was challenging but without trust uh, it could have gone even even worse thank you valentina zanetti for joining us thank you and i thank you for the invitation of for having me to here today at the end of all these discussions it's clear the pandemic has highlighted vulnerabilities in our food system but also its resilience and its capacity to adapt in times of crisis In the face of the unforeseen, there's no ready-made solution, of course, but there is a willingness to put in place the necessary thinking and tools for a rapid reaction. This is precisely what the emergency plan adopted by the European Commission is aiming to do. Thank you to all our guests for their contribution to this podcast. The next edition of Food for Europe will be our last of the year. Perfect opportunity to tell you about the holiday season and the food coming with it. Until then, from all of us on the Food for Europe team, take care and goodbye. Organic farming is steadily increasing. That's good. Pour parler d'agriculture et d'Europe à la jeunesse. The climate affects immer weitere Teile der Welt. Farmers help us bring nature back and preserve biodiversity. Ceux qui sont dans le rouge s'en sortent quand ils font plus vert. La qualité dans ce pays, elle doit être là pour tous. 